regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. So, Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Luigi Patruno. Luigi is a data scientist and the founder of MLInProduction.com. He's currently the director of data science at 2U, where he leads a team of data scientists and ML engineers in uh, developing machine learning models and infrastructure to predict student success outcomes. He founded MLInProduction.com to educate data scientists, uh, machine learning engineers, and uh, machine learning product managers about the best practices for running machine learning system in production. As a consultant for Fortune 500 and startups, uh, he helps company utilize data science to create competitive advantage. He has taught graduate level course at statistics and big data engineering, um, and also holds a master in computer science and a bachelor degree in uh, mathematics. So Luigi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So yeah, I want to start out talking a little bit about your educational background. So I saw that you uh, you got your bachelor in in math and and uh, your master in computer science, both degrees from Fordham University. So uh, can you quickly describe your academic experience? Sure. So I studied pure math as an undergraduate, uh, which is very different than the type of mathematics uh, that's typically utilized in machine learning and statistical optimization. Um, and at that time, my goal was to go into academia and become a professor uh, in pure mathematics. So pure math is really what you're working on is really writing and reading proofs. To be honest, at the end of the day, there's very little computation um, and very little sort of emphasis on, for lack of a better term, what you would describe as useful sort of mathematics that you can utilize every day in, in the everyday world. But I got into programming by a sort of coincidence. The first year I was an undergraduate was actually the first year that undergraduates studying math had to take an intro to computer science course. And before that, I hadn't studied any computer science or done any programming outside of building some basic HTML websites. Although I did very well in the course, I really hated it, to be honest. And, you know, I spent a lot of time doing these assignments. You know, there was a lot of issues. And I decided not to take computer science the next semester which would have been the CS2 course, which was the, the next course in the CS1, CS2 sequence. But I actually wound up going back to programming maybe one or two years later when I was still an undergraduate and doing undergraduate research. And I realized that if I wanted to contribute anything at all to pure math research as an undergraduate, I had to do some computation. So I had to learn some programming. So I wound up going back to programming and actually utilizing some tools that I still use today. So the first environment that I programmed in at the time was actually a Jupyter Notebook. Um, and Python was the language I was using. But I didn't know that at the time. 
the reason I was using those tools was because I was using a tool called, uh, I actually forget the name of it, but it was an open source version of Mathematica, essentially. Oh, it's called Sage. And uh, the interface to Sage was uh, Jupyter. And Sage itself was actually a set of uh, Python libraries, but I didn't know any of this at the time. Um, so, so really, you know, I was focused on studying mathematics um, and I really enjoyed studying math in that academic setting um, and later on studied computer science uh, and my master's. As you mentioned, you understand you saw the usefulness of programming and that's why you try to make the transition going from, from math to, to CS, right? So there's actually a little bit of a story there too. And when I, when I graduated as an undergrad, I didn't go into academia. Uh, I decided at that point that what I had been working towards for four years, I basically didn't want to do anymore, as I think a lot of undergraduates do. And I wound up getting a job um, at a startup as a data analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of from there, I got into a little bit more software development and, and then wound up going back to graduate school to do my degree in computer science. You try to get some hands-on experience before you. Um, getting back to to pursue your, your master degree, right? During your master degree, you know, especially you briefly work as a research engineer at the university wireless sensor and data mining lab for a year. Can you uh, briefly share some uh, sort of the backstory behind this? Right. Yeah. So as I was saying, I worked as a data analyst, and I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't study uh, applied math or statistics uh, or data analysis for that matter. I, I didn't really know what it what it meant to be a data analyst. When I was applying for the job, I just thought, hey, I know some math uh, and these, you know, this startup uh, needs to hire some people who can analyze some data and that, that should require some mathematics, right? And when I took the job, I quickly realized uh, that I didn't know much and um, I got into doing some software development while I was there and as I was doing the software development, I also realized I didn't know too much. Um, I was able to struggle through by doing a lot of Googling and going to Stack Overflow and learning on the job, which was quite useful and actually is, you know, a lot of how software engineers and data scientists do their work today uh, when they're learning new libraries and new tools. But at the time, I was used to learning in an academic setting. So this idea of learning things so rapidly on the job was actually a bit frightening and anxiety inducing when I was doing it on the job because I thought, oh, I need to know much more about databases if I'm going to be programming and interacting with databases. I was in this job and, uh, you know, sort of filled with anxiety because I didn't know all the skills I needed to know. And I decided that working as a programmer and as a software developer would be a pretty interesting career path. So I had some connections back at Fordham in the wireless sensor data mining lab or wisdom as it's called for short. And I reached out to the head of the lab there, a professor named Gary Weiss and many of his sort of star research assistants were actually just graduating that year. So his lab and this project, which had been the mainstay, uh, this project, which had been the main part of his lab for the previous several years, lost all of its workers, essentially. So uh, I was able to apply and get a, a research assistantship to go back to Fordham, study computer science, and, and work in his lab. Um, and if it wasn't for that scholarship, I really wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise because you know I, I was fresh out of school, I had no money. Um, so it was a sort of, it was the right opportunity at the right time. And uh, the lab was doing some pretty innovative stuff at the time. Uh, we were actually using machine learning on accelerometer and gyroscope sensor data from cell phones and smartwatches. And at the time, this was really innovative. 
right? Because it was, you know, early part of the 2010s, 2011, 2012, 2013, around that time. And this idea was pretty novel. First of all, the sensors in the phones were pretty novel. So this data wasn't around for very long. Um, and the idea of using this data uh, to create new mobile applications was also pretty novel. So uh, it was an interesting time to be there. And it was my first introduction to machine learning. Because before that, I, hadn't, I didn't know what machine learning was. Uh, so it was, it was my first practical introduction to what machine learning was capable of doing. So you, you got introduced in uh, by working, get some hands on experience working at, at the private lab and uh, right. what practical applications were. Your, your first role outside of grad school is um, working as a data engineer at Namely, which based on my research is a um, human resources platform for mid-sized companies. How did this opportunity come about and um, how was your experience at Namely? Yeah, so before I actually got the job at Namely, I did a data science boot camp while I was still a graduate student at Fordham. This bootcamp was pretty competitive back then because the program was free for students and the way the bootcamp made money was actually by uh, sharing a portion of uh, a hire's first year of salary, right? So basically they got the companies who hired the graduates of the bootcamp to pay for the graduates tuition, right? So there was a pretty competitive application process and I applied because I had gotten more interested in, in data science positions by that point. And honestly, through some, you know, sheer luck, I was able to get in, to be honest, uh, because there was something like over 1500 applications and they only accepted about 50 people. And of those 50 people, 48 of them already had their PhDs. One of them had a master's degree. And then there was me who was still pursuing a master's degree. So I was sort of in a, a new league at that point. Um, and again, at the same time, it felt a little uh, worrisome because there were all of these people with advanced degrees. And these were people I sort of looked up to because at, up until that point, I had thought I was going to get my own PhD. But at the same time, I was looking at the situation and I thought, well, all of these people who've had an additional five, six, seven years of schooling are in the same position that I'm in right now looking for a job. And that was a little interesting to me. Because I thought, well, surely these people should be way ahead of me, right? I mean, they've invested so much more time in school. These data science jobs should be easy for them to get. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, and it wasn't the case, for, it wasn't the case that uh, it was easy for me to get one of these jobs either. Um, after the program, I actually had trouble getting a new data scientist position. And to be honest, I just didn't have the right experience for it, right? So my, my knowledge of machine learning at the time was still pretty uh, immature, and I was learning a lot of the methodologies, but my, for instance, experience in data analysis was you know, not quite there yet. Uh, what I did have, though, was some pretty good software engineering chops. So after many months of applying and not getting my first position, and I think a lot of people in the industry who've been working in the industry now can, can say that getting that first data science job is one of the most difficult parts of transitioning into the industry. Um, and I had a several month process where I was unable to get a job. And when I did get a job, it was a data engineering position, mostly because I had more experience as a software engineer than I did as a data scientist building machine learning models. Um, so I, you know, I, I got this job. And one of the main reasons I, I took the job was that the company was creating this really interesting data set um, on top of this HR data, right? So we had benefits information on employees. We had payroll information on employees. 
And this was across the tech industry, as you mentioned, for small to mid-sized companies, a bunch of startups. And when the company pitched me on the role, they mentioned that on their roadmap was this idea of building advanced analytics into their product based on these data sets that they were uh, gathering from their customers. So there was this interesting opportunity to, to do some machine learning, to do some data analysis at this company in the future, but that wound up never really materializing. So I eventually left that company to pursue something uh, that was more analytical because I wasn't completely interested in just a, a software development data engineering role. Um, but I learned a lot of really useful skills and it was also really fun and enjoyable actually having some money while living in New York City because up until that point, uh, you know, I, was, I grew up in New York City and then I went to college and graduate school in New York City and New York City is an expensive place, but I never really had any money. Um, so it was, it was fun to have some money in New York City as a, as a young person and I met some great people are still part of my life today yeah thanks for sharing that and um and kind of emphasize your story on the real challenge of getting that entry-level career in, in the field and that it equal a lot of the sentiments of a lot of newcomers as well so i, I think you know you're sharing that story and it was really valuable to you know for people to kind of understand how how they should leverage their own experience to a very different way getting data science and it seems like you know your experience working at the lab at Fordham building up that software engineering background was really helpful for, for, for you to get that, that first uh, data engineering job. Sure. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts actually on newcomers to the field. And that's one of the main reasons I started my blog and my newsletter. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later on. John, your next role is um, working as a machine learning engineer at uh, Control Apps, uh, which is a startup pioneering the development of uh, non-invasive neural interfaces that reimagine how humans and machines collaborate. Yes, yeah, so I actually had a chance to went to one of the talk with uh, one of the founder of Control Apps. So it was very, really insightful to kind of see, you know, the, the, the kind of interesting stuff that they was um, developing. For the people who are not familiar with, with the company, can you share a, a brief overview of Control Apps as well as the projects that um, you were involved with? Totally. So when I joined the company, it actually wasn't called Control Labs. It was called Cognescent. And one of the topics that we spoke about pretty frequently at the company was how much we hated the name because it made absolutely no sense in any way. And later on when I left, they called it Control Labs. So if I slip up in describing my time there and refer to it as Cognescent, it's just because that's what it was called when I was there. But Control Labs is a super interesting company. And for those who aren't aware, it was recently acquired by Facebook for something like a billion dollars. So it you know, generated an immense amount of value for the founders there. And essentially, the company's thesis was that uh, the bandwidth of human output uh, or the bandwidth of, of a computer's input is severely limited. Right. So we moved from mainframe computers to PCs to mobile devices and the amount of computing power, you know, per let's say square inch of device just exploded. And the amount of media from these devices, the amount of multimedia really exploded, right? So we got uh, obviously text and visual, but then we got um, audio, we got video data coming out of these things. So the bandwidth of data coming out of the devices was growing as these devices were getting smaller. But this just wasn't the case uh, in terms of input. The only thing that changed was the keyboard got smaller, right? So we went from typing on the desk to then typing with our thumbs. 
which is a terrible way of actually transmitting data to the device, right? So we were able to get a lot of data out of the device, but we, were, we aren't able to transmit a lot of the data quickly into the device. So this was the main problem that the founders of Control Labs identified. And their thesis was, well, if we could decode neural activity from motor neurons, we could then map that neural activity to actual um, actions on a computer, right? So we can map the way our muscles move and use that to drive actions on a computer. For instance, moving a mouse or clicking a button. You know, more interestingly and more intriguing is that this isn't just for discrete actions, right? So the idea wasn't just to decode this signal and be able to take discrete steps like click or, you know, increase, increment something by one. The real goal was to create a continuous output. So imagine something like moving a mouse across the screen, but doing that in a, a larger number of dimensions. So one of the examples that came up quite frequently while we were there is sort of creating an octopus with eight legs and being able to move all of those continuously. And the value in, in that uh, is easily seeable in something like virtual reality or augmented reality, right? Where we'd like to control our experiences in different ways. So the idea there was to uh, decode this neural activity that's transmitted through our motor neurons and is essentially, you can censor it, you can measure it at the surface level of your skin through your musculature and muscular activity uh, using a set of sensors that you just place uh, on your skin, essentially. And we were developing um, a wristband that went around your forearm um, with sensors all the way around your forearm. And that was the sort of data that was being generated. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to map that to things like the force and positions of your joints on your hand, mm -hmm. right? And that way we can sort of build a re this multivariate regression model inferred the position and force from your of your hand just based on the essentially the, the voltage that was coming through your musculature i see and uh, it was it was a really interesting role and i joined there as the first ml engineer and what that really meant in practice was that i acted as a, a link between the research scientists who mm. were phds mostly neuroscientists and physicists and the software engineers who were pure software engineers Right. So I had this really interesting role where I lived in both worlds because I spoke both languages just enough to be able to communicate ideas from the research scientists to the engineers and vice versa. Right. So it was a really interesting role. And what I did there was build a lot of the research infrastructure and helped prototype the models that were developed there by coming up with components that research scientists could plug into their systems. I built out visualization tools that really helped uh, improve the models as we were developing them. I built out uh, tools to improve the quality of the data sets that we were collecting, which, you know, if you know anything about machine learning, the quality of the data sets, probably the most important thing in terms of building models. Um, I built out systems to collect ground truth. And I wound up hiring a lot of the other engineers um, and some of the research scientists who joined the team after me. I think I was an employee like number nine or number 10 there. I see. Yeah, so that sounds like you, um, like this, this next job of your career, really is about um, kind of getting a broader skill set, right? So in your peer service, namely, you kind of focus a lot on engineering side. So if in this role, you kind of branch out a little bit and um, be much more communicative towards the, the research aspect of, of the job. 
So, and, and you try to make um, that, that link between research and, and, and uh, production. Um, right. I, I think like, you know, engineering has become more and more in demand in, in, in the tech industry and uh, in, in a couple of years, because, you know, that, that is the, that, that really kind of bring the most amount of impact towards the final business outcome. So uh, more and more people are seeking to, to, to get that job. So, yeah. So thanks for sharing kind of a bit about your experience, how, how get, you get to it um, in the first place. Kind of focus a little bit on, on, you know, on that transition from the engineer to the engineer. What has been sort of the skill set and technology that you pick up along the way? When I was working as a data engineer, I was always studying machine learning on the side because that was really my foremost interest. Um, although I hadn't gotten a job as a data scientist on the first go around, um, I still wanted to be doing that model building data analysis work. And I wasn't really happy in that software only role. Um, so I was constantly reading machine learning textbooks and, and working through the math proofs in these textbooks, right? Which was totally the wrong way of learning the stuff. But I had a hard time uh, shedding my training in pure mathematics, right? As a, when I was an, uh, an undergrad and thinking that I was going to go into academia, I was drilled into believing that you need to understand the proofs inside and out if you were going to make it. And in pure math, that is the case. But what I didn't understand at the time was that method of learning didn't cross over into most other fields. And it definitely didn't cross over into machine learning. But as I moved into this quote unquote mathematical field, I thought that the same skills that served me in pure math would serve me in machine learning. And it took a couple of years for me to figure out that that wasn't the case. But when I was at Control Labs, what I did pick up was a lot of data analysis skills and experience. And that was what I had been lacking the most when I first applied to Namely and when I worked at Namely, right? I didn't have that data analysis experience really digging into data sets, um, you know, learning about the problems that could plague data sets, missing values, um, incorrect data formats, you know, shifting distributions, all of these issues that are super critical in order to build machine learning. I was able to build a foundation in as I worked as a machine learning engineer um, at Control Labs. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the biggest things I got out of the experience uh, is that it really opened my mind to all the kinds of data sets that are out there, right? And all the techniques for analyzing that data. So I really learned about the importance of domain expertise because although I was working on machine learning at Control Labs, I was still a bit um, unhappy that I wasn't able to contribute as much to the actual models themselves as the research scientists were. But these research scientists had, you know, upwards of a decade of experience of, in analyzing this EMG data. Uh, and the EMG sensors were the sensors that we were using. So this was a sort of a whole new world that I, I hadn't known about previously. And I learned about all the kinds of different areas of, of, of data that exist. Um, I learned about the importance of visualization because I built a lot of visualization systems and these were used in the research prototypes, right? So if we couldn't visualize uh, this high dimensional data, uh, we couldn't really learn much about the quality of the data itself. Um, and finally, I learned really the importance of the idea of dimensionality reduction, right? Because this, this, this hardware device that we were building, it essentially had 16 sensors on it, right? So the, the, the data we were looking at was 16 dimensional but it was really high throughput in, in the time dimension. So we were sampling at over 3,000 times per second. 
right? So we had the 16 column basically data frame, but each second generated 3,000 rows, mm -hmm. right? And we needed to take that data and, you know, build classification and regression models. And understanding that data was really difficult unless you were able to reduce its dimensionality um, and generate some visualizations in two and three dimensions in order to help out your analyses. So I learned a lot about data analysis uh, while I was on the job, and, and that's probably the most important skill set I got while I was there. Appreciate you, uh, you uh, sharing with about that. Yeah, most real world data is, is very high dimensional, like you already mentioned. Yeah, having that um, that that appreciation for simplifying that that, that data is, is is certainly very important if you want to communicate that results for non-technical stakeholder, explain that value to your customers. So totally agree with, with what you just mentioned. Since the uh, January of 2018, you uh, have worked at uh, 2U, which is an EdTech SaaS platform uh, providing schools with uh, comprehensive operating infrastructure that they need to attract, enroll, educate, support, and graduate students globally. And so my understanding is you first joined 2U as a data scientist, and then later you become the, the director of data science after a year. And so what attracted you to join 2U? Um, what are some of your, you know, broad responsibility and uh, also what would be your advice for, you know, you know, IC who look into transition into, into leadership within the data science arc? Right. So after I left Control Labs, I didn't have another full-time job for maybe six to eight months after that. And mm -hmm. the main reason for that was that I was really burnt out and um, I actually got a bit ill after I left the company and needed to take some time off. Um, but what I did do while I left was I taught graduate courses. So when I, was, uh, when I first joined as an ML engineer, I knew I needed to increase my knowledge of data analysis. And one of my favorite ways of learning something is to teach it. And Fordham had some, Fordham actually contacted me and asked me if I wanted to teach a course in the graduate computer science department in data analysis. And I thought, well, I don't know data analysis that well. And if I need to teach it, I certainly don't want to look like an idiot. So it'll really sort of force me to learn the topic really well. And that's what I did. Um, I threw myself into learning data analysis well enough to be able to teach it to graduate students. And one advantage I had over a lot of other um, adjuncts and professors was that I had some industry experience in this field that was sort of exploding at the time. So I had access to a lot more tools, um, open source tools, and online examples that I can use to teach myself. So for instance, the textbook that I actually wound up using is available for free online and is written uh, first and foremost for people who know how to code. Mm -hmm. So it was a great way uh, for me to learn data analysis and it was also a great way to teach it uh, in the computer science department because all of the students in the class knew how to code, but had much weaker backgrounds in mathematics or statistics. So teaching a course from a sort of statistics first uh, way, the way in which it's typically taught in the classroom would have been less useful and probably a lot more boring for people, especially since several of the students were taking this course because it was a requirement rather than a sincere interest. And I wound up learning that I really loved uh, teaching. You know, I taught that course for a couple of semesters in a row, and then I wound up teaching uh, a big data engineering course. And I really enjoyed the moments in the classroom where students were learning things. 
Uh, and that wasn't a new finding for me. I had previously been uh, a tutor for a number of years all throughout my stint in junior high school and high school and college. I tutored students in, in mathematics and, and computer science. Um, I even, you know, sort of supported myself on tutoring directly after I graduated undergraduate uh, when I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. When I was teaching, I realized, well, I really like this teaching thing, but I kind of want to go back to data science. So I know that this industry called EdTech exists. Let me see if there are some data science positions in EdTech. And they're actually, again, very luckily, uh, there was a company called 2U, which is in EdTech, based in New York City. And there was a data scientist position open. And not only was there a data scientist position open, but one of my closest friends worked at 2U. So he was able to help get my foot in the door. And I was really aligned with the mission of 2U when I was doing research into the company and interviewed there and wound up getting the job. Um, So that's how I wound up getting to 2U. It was really my interest in education um, and data science that brought me there. And uh, one last thing worth bringing up is another reason I left Control Labs was I didn't really enjoy the job of working on a really specific problem, a really specific technical problem, as much as I thought I would. I wanted to learn much more about different aspects of running a business. And the data scientist position at 2U was much more focused on optimizing the business than it was on solving a particular technical problem, which is what I was doing at Control Labs. Mm -hmm. So there was a number of things going on in my life at the time, and they all sort of, the stars aligned for me to to join 2U. You also asked about my responsibilities there um, and what my advice would be for um, ICs or individual contributors looking to to go into leadership. Uh, Well, when I first joined, my responsibility was specifically to build machine learning models and features. So I worked on a number of business, uh, a number of business problems. And at 2U, the data science team really works to optimize the business. For those of you who don't know about 2U, essentially what the company does is partner with the world's leading universities in order to put their graduate programs online. At least that's what the company was when I first joined. And since then, they've also acquired companies that do things like uh, short courses and boot camps through universities. So to you helps a university like NYU or USC put their graduate programs online so that students from across the world can get a graduate degree uh, from these universities. Mm-hmm. And the data science team helps optimize different parts of the business at to you. So I was building predictive models um, and building sort of Uh, infrastructure to help with the predictive models. And I was able to do this again because of my experience in data engineering, machine learning, and machine learning engineering. Uh, In terms of transitioning to leadership, my advice would be really get good at your job before looking to get a position um, as a leader of a team, especially in this really technical role of data science, right? There's this idea of general managers who are people who can sort of manage any role. And while a general manager um, could be useful in certain uh, business domains, I think they're a lot less useful in a very technical domain like data science, where it really pays to know the data science and the machine learning. Because when you're mentoring, you know, more junior candidates or individual contributors who don't need to be junior, you need to be able to talk about data science topics, right? So if you don't know 
if you can't work as an individual contributor, I don't think you can be effective as a manager or as a leader. But at the same time, it's necessary to be a good data scientist, but it's not sufficient, right? Because management involves a lot of other skills that you don't get to practice as an individual contributor. So just because you're a great data scientist doesn't mean that you're going to be a great manager of data scientists. So my advice would be to get really good at data scientists, at data science, but then keep an open mind to learning all the skills that you won't have learned as an individual contributor because you'll need them to be an effective leader. And yeah, and, and it seems like initially you mentioned that you, you know, the reason that, that you uh, want to move to, to you is because the job, your interest in, in that business aspect of the whole, of a, you know, a startup organization, right? And that, that interest in, you know, something outside of technical domain, I, I'm sure that is also value, kind of almost like a requirement for the director role that, that you currently in as well. So in addition to already being, being good at adjusting technical skills, that is very important to understand the business outcome and, and understand Absolutely. the money. Right? So it's because you're already enjoyed your initial interest. That's why you, you can make that, that transition. Also, well, just a quick side note. This is, um, I'm just curious, very curious, uh, especially given this, this current uncertainty time with, with education, right? Obviously, all school is being closed. Uh, all the uh, coursework is moving online. Students now communicate with teachers via platform like Zoom. And it seems like to you is, is very um, an advocate of that model. From from an insider perspective, have a good understanding of the edtech ecosystem. What, what do you see uh, education looks like in the next couple of months or, or years? Yeah. yeah, it's a really interesting question. And you bring up a good point, which is that EdTech companies are sort of especially suited to today's conditions, right, with coronavirus, where before coronavirus, we were already advocating for universities to teach through Zoom, mm -hmm. right, and to you actually uh, uses Zoom as part of their platform for teaching and for students. In terms of the next few years, I mean, it's really open. Right now, universities are struggling because they have to confront the reality that Uh, they either won't be able to open on-campus programs in the fall or that those on-campus programs are going to be super different than they were uh, last fall. So it's, it's a bit of an open question. And I think a lot of universities are scrambling at the moment. So it opens up a, a lot of possibilities for companies like 2U to really uh, jump in there and, and help them out um, and help them come up with new Uh, revenue streams and, and business models and um, sort of, you know, improve the uh, student outcomes and improve the student experience much more than would have been possible if it wasn't for platforms like those to you. So um, I think there's a lot of open questions, but I think to you has a, a really bright future and there's a lot of opportunity to collaborate with uh, universities and faculty members at universities in really interesting ways. That aspect of incentivize the professors and, and university to move to that digital realms. I think that that buy-in, right, is probably probably the, the hardest part. As the director of data science at, at 2U, one of your main priorities is um, hiring talents for the team, right? And you recently wrote a blog post called "How I Hire Data Scientists," where you share advice for both the hiring managers and the job applicants. So, can you unpack the lessons from that piece? Sure. So I really enjoyed writing uh, this post and the, my motivation for writing this post was actually one of my main motivations for starting my blog, mlmproduction.com in the first place. And it was that 
I had been working as a data scientist and in the fields of data for a few years, and I knew the sorts of problems that data scientists worked on, right? Um, I knew where the challenges lay. I knew where we spent the most time working. And when I looked online at blogs, I saw that most of the content out there was on topics like, you know, learning algorithms, building convolutional neural networks, reinforcement learning. These were all topics that were really interesting, but I spent a vanishingly small percentage of my time on any one of those topics. And mostly I spent 0% of my time on topics like reinforcement learning and convolutional neural networks, right? So if you're in, if you're in the field of data science, you had one picture of what data science looked like because you were living and breathing it every day. But if you were just reading about data science, and this is the reality for people who are not yet in the industry, but are looking to transition into the industry, you get an entirely different picture of what data scientists do in the day to day, right? So, so I was in the situation where what I did as a data scientist was at odds with what the internet said I did as a data scientist, right? And one of the effects of this is that it has a really negative impact on people looking to get into data science because they have all of these ideas of what the role entails that wind up not being true. And this actually leads to a lot of dissatisfaction amongst people who get the job. Uh, I've heard many times that people become data scientists and then they're upset at all the engineering work they have to do um, or they get into data scientists and they're upset that they have to build all these dashboards for the business intelligence folks um, or for the marketing team or these sorts of things. And I used to be in that camp as well. I used to be upset at all the engineering work I, I was doing, but I've learned to embrace that. Another impact that this has is on the actual hiring process, right? Because the data science role is so difficult from company to company, you know, I worked in, in, in the HR space and then I worked at Control Labs doing this really technical sensor data work. And then I worked at 2U um, in edge tech. Um, I saw that what it meant to work on data in each of these companies was very different. So even though each of these companies hired you know, something akin to a data scientist, the skills that were relevant for that job was different across the companies, right? So this makes it very challenging for people who are applying to jobs because if they're applying only because the role is called a data scientist, they're going to have problems applying to these different companies because their skill sets won't match each of these companies, right? And this is also a big challenge for the hiring manager. And I've gotten to see both sides of the story, both in terms of applying for jobs and hiring people to get the jobs, because you wind up getting a lot of resumes from people who just don't have the required experience for the job. So as an example, my last role that I hired for, it was one position. I got over a thousand resumes for this role, right? So over a thousand resumes that luckily I don't have to sift through, right? The HR team does most of that uh, initial round for this one position. So what does that mean for um, the people doing the hiring? And what does that mean for the people looking for the jobs? Well, for the people to, who are doing the hiring, the hiring managers, it pays to be as specific as possible in describing what you're looking for, right? And it, does, it pays to do that more so for yourself than it does for the people applying to the job. And what I mean by that is you want to have a really good idea of the people you're looking for. Because if you have this really good idea, you can write really good job specs and you can help the HR team filter through all these resumes really easily. Whereas if you say something more generic, like I want somebody who can do data analysis, that's completely non-actionable. And it's very hard to do any filtering. 
on the other side of the aisle for the people uh, looking for the jobs, you need to find ways of differentiating yourself when you're applying for data scientist positions, right? Because you need to think of, you might think, oh, I've done all of these interesting projects. I've built recommender systems on these small data, on the Yelp data set or on MovieLens. You know, I built uh, these small models on these small data sets. And I have so many of these projects, people must be interested in me. And the reality is every one of those 1,000 resumes has the same projects on them, right? So you need to put your, if you're looking for a job, you should put yourself in the shoes of a hiring manager who has to filter through a thousand resumes. And what this person is looking for is something that makes you stand out. And saying that you went to a boot camp or saying that you did a graduate degree and you're fresh out of school or saying that you have a couple of you know, small portfolio projects under your belt doesn't differentiate you today. So my advice you know, would be to really look at yourself and pick out what makes you unique and come up with a good way of communicating that when you're applying to jobs. Yeah, perfect. And then I'll be sure to include it, the, the link to the article in the show notes so people can, uh, can look at that and, and uh, understand you know, some, some of your points that you just mentioned uh, in, in more specific detail. Right? Yeah, so kind of going back, talking about ML in production, you start the, the website back in you know, January 2019. And uh, the idea of ML in production is to provide content on best practices of doing you know, machine learning in production, as, as the name suggests. You already uh, mentioned a little bit on um, seeing that lack of coverage of, of this topic on the internet. And my understanding is you, you also have uh, another personal itch of studying this as well because you, uh, yeah, you actually re- written a recent blog post explaining your motivation to start the website. So, you know, in addition to what you already covered in, in the previous answer, you know, would you mind, you know, sharing the, the anecdotal journey of uh, studying this with the audience? Yeah, yeah. So it's worth saying that I started the blog essentially for two reasons. One I've already briefly described, which is what the internet says data scientists do uh, isn't actually what data scientists do. Uh, And a corollary of that was when I was looking for content to actually improve my skills and to help me with the challenges I was facing, it was super difficult to find that content, right? All I could find was intro level posts or posts on learning algorithms or clickbait, to be completely honest. It was really hard to find quality content to learn how to tackle some of the challenges that I was facing when I was building these production level systems. So challenges have to do with things like how do you deploy a model so that it's useful in in an environment, right? How do you efficiently log the inputs and the outputs and collect that data so you can track model drift over time? These were things that I was doing. Uh, that I needed to learn how to do better. And I was looking for resources to, to learn how to do those things, but they were really hard to find. So I thought, well, there's a need here, right? There are going to be more and more data scientists doing this sort of work in the future. And there's no easy way of getting this content, right? You have to spend hours researching to find good articles or good courses or good videos on how to do these things. And since I'm already doing that research, let me come up with a service that can make that research available to other people, right? So that was the, my original motivation for starting the newsletter. I wanted to make it as easy as possible for people who are already in data science, who are already working as data scientists, machine learning engineers, and even machine learning product managers to find content. I want to make it as easy for them to find the content as it was for 
uh, newbies to find the content because it was really easy to find introductory content. You can just go on KD Nuggets or you can just go on Medium and there's plenty of blog posts explaining things in beginner-friendly ways. So the newsletter was aimed at coming up with a service that people can just sign up for for free and they would just get this content in their inbox each week. Um, and the, the sort of second motivation for doing this was, as I mentioned, I had an interest in business and I wanted to start my own small business. And around that time, or maybe a little bit before January, 2019, I had been following a lot of, you know, internet entrepreneurs who essentially were putting out content as a way of driving some income for them on the side. And one of the ways of doing this was to create a blog, have a newsletter, um, and routinely put out high quality content for an audience in order to build up an audience of people. And when I was thinking about doing that, my, my main question was, well, what do, I, what, what do I write about? I had never had a blog. I had never done a newsletter. The idea of, of writing a blog post at that time was actually uh, anxiety-inducing for me because I had to sit there and write this huge blog post and there were so many great quality blog posts online. How could mine measure up? So I had this sort of imposter syndrome um, issue as well at the time. But I realized, well, you spend a lot of time on machine learning, a lot of time reading these articles and looking for these articles just because you want to get better at your day job. So why don't you just leverage all of that research that you already do and put out a newsletter and a blog eventually? So my, my two motivations were really, there was this need that I found that I was trying to solve for myself. And then there was my desire to start a business and not leave my full-time job. So those things sort of came together at the same time and mlmproduction.com was born. I think, I think the recent term for this is called the, um, the passion economy. You know, exactly, exactly. You, you, uh, you monetize your passion. And especially you, you back to your point about having that the specific audience in mind. You, know, you, you write for a very specific audience and, and you, you got these true fans who really appreciate uh, the, the kind of content that you come out. And so you, the better the quality of the content that, that you provided, then, you know, the, the more the reputation that you got on the digital universe, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I had this, you know, at the time I had this idea that, you know, I really didn't want to write about something I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. You know, some people um, are more comfortable with doing that, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I really didn't want to be a fraud in any way. Not saying that everybody who does that is a fraud, but I wanted to write about something that I can, I, I felt can contribute a lot of value. And I knew more about machine learning, engineering, and data science than I knew almost about any other topic. Uh, and I was actively researching it. So I thought this is probably the best thing that I can write about at this point in time. And uh, yeah, as, as you uh, briefly mentioned, a significant component of just science is the weekly newsletter. So since its inception, what has been the general engagement and what types of content seems to uh, resonate the most with your subscribers? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually putting up a follow. I'm putting out a follow-up piece to uh, my blog post describing my motivation. Uh, mm-hmm. And in this follow-up piece, I'm actually charting out my journey over the last 15 months, and both in terms of how my writing habits have changed, and also how the engagement uh, with the newsletter and the blog has changed, and what events uh, impacted and caused those changes. So. I have some of these some of these ideas fresh in my head, which is useful. The engagement I think has been quite good. Uh, right now, I send out a weekly email, and 
this email is structured, has, has two parts. Uh, the first part is a list of five links to articles, blog posts, conference papers, YouTube videos, podcasts, you name it, whatever sort of digital content I can find that I think is very valuable to data scientists, machine learning engineers, and machine learning product managers who are focused on building products with machine learning and running and maintaining these real world machine learning systems, right? So my emphasis isn't on building the highest um, accuracy model. It's on delivering value to end users through machine learning and all of the challenges you have to face when you're building out these systems. So this content is, is personally curated by me because I read a lot of articles and I think, well, this is actually useful to me as an individual contributor, um, as a leader in the field, right? These are the articles that I'm reading and sending out to my friends who work in the field because I think, hey, you can, you can get something valuable out of this. So in that sense, uh, the articles are, are valuable because they help me as a practitioner. And the other part of the newsletter is something like five to 600 words where I write about my experiences in the industry, uh, challenges that I'm facing, ways of solving problems, sometimes just general news I have about my blog. For example, if I posted a new blog post, um, I'll mention that in the newsletter. And the engagement, as I mentioned, has been quite good. I, I get a lot of feed qualitatively. I get a lot of replies from people mentioning how useful the newsletter is to them. Um, I've been getting more and more. I've been doing Twitter a little bit more and getting a lot of sort of uh, at mentions about how useful the newsletter is for, is to people. Uh, in terms of quantitative metrics, the my subscriber count has been growing. And if you you know maintain a newsletter, that's a really uh, valuable metric. Although it's also a vanity metric at the same time because you can easily game that number right by buying a whole bunch of garbage newsletter subscribers. But one way I get around that is all of my growth has come organically. I haven't bought any ads or done any sort of keyword campaigns to grow the newsletter. It's just all come organically through word of mouth and just putting my content online through my LinkedIn and my uh, Twitter account. And, and the actual open rates are quite high. So right now my open rates are still above 50% for tens of thousands of emails, which from my research is, is pretty good. Thanks, thanks for sharing that and then being very specific on the strategy that you use to um, sure. distribute your, your, your newsletter. Um, yeah, so now I want to kind of dig deeper into you know, some of the blog series that you have uh, put out in, in the past year or so. One of the earliest blog series that you work on is called Docker for Machine Learning. So this is a four-part series that uh, discussed uh, the, the benefits of using Docker uh, with machine learning, how to do custom Docker images, how to perform batch inference using Docker containers, and uh, how to perform online inference using Docker uh, and Flash REST API. So uh, can you talk about the, the process of writing this series and you know, what are some of the main takeaways on Docker for ML that the uh, listener can get out? Sure. Yeah, so these are the first few blog posts I put out on mlmproduction.com. And interestingly enough, you asked earlier about my position at Namely and what sort of interesting things I learned at Namely, even though I wasn't in a machine learning role. The actual, the first thing I learned at Namely on the job, literally the first thing was Docker. And this was the case because Docker was just coming out at that time and sort of revolutionizing software development in general. And Namely was a startup and startups 
like open source software and like shiny new things, to be honest. And uh, luckily, Docker turned out to be much more than just a shiny new thing. It's very valuable software. So I learned it on the job there. And what I learned as a data scientist was that Docker is super useful because data scientists use a lot of different software, a lot of different open source software, a lot of different technologies, different databases, different machine learning libraries. And installing all of that software can be a really frustrating process. Um, But Docker makes it really easy, right? So it's sort of optimized for data scientists because it allows them to build up environments for whatever sorts of analyses or, or workflows that they're, uh, they're doing. And one of the other main benefits is that it makes deployment really easy. And the reason I say that is because you can very easily stitch together these encapsulated, isolated components using Docker images and Docker containers. And then you can ship those uh, images and containers off to distributed systems or remote systems and have them operate in the same way. So for example, if you wanted to package your trained model as an API, you can do that really easily uh, using Docker images. Um, and Docker is becoming the sort of computational model that more and more ML platforms are using. They sort of just rely on Docker to create these independent programming environments. So my thought at the time was, well, a lot of data scientists uh, may not know about Docker and it's sort of an intimidating technology because it's really focused sort of on, you know, on, on, on software engineering skills, but I think it's really useful for data scientists. So why don't I write a series introducing Docker, but written from the point of view as a data scientist using Docker to solve actual machine learning problems. I see. Um, yeah, and I'll be sure to uh, link that to your show notes. It would be the nice tutorial that you put on uh, in that series. And, and related to you know the Docker series that we just discussed, your next post is called uh, Batch Inference versus Online Inference. And you talk about sort of the differences between using these two approach for, for serving your model. So yeah, would you mind going over such differences? Sure. So really briefly, when you deploy your model, what you're trying to do is deliver the actual value to end users in some way. Right. If you've trained a model, even if that model is perfect, it's completely useless until the predictions from that model help people in some way or arrive to people in some way. And deployment is the process of taking this model and making it available to end users or to other software systems. But how you do that will depend on how that data needs to get utilized. So, for example, um, think about a recommender system that needs to recommend songs in real time to users, right? If, if a song needs to be recommended in real time, that means we need to be able to access that model, quote unquote, query that model in real time, right? If we can't, if we can't query that model in real time, or if we can't query the inferences from that model in real time, then the model is useless, right? But there's other systems where we don't need the inferences or the predictions right away. So for example, uh, the example I like to use is something like lead scoring, where a software, you know, a company will generate new leads and we want to rank order these leads in terms of who is most likely to become a paying customer, right? 
we may not need that information right away. It may be enough to just compute those scores for each of the leads once a day and then cache those scores and make them available for, you know, to the sales team or to the marketing team or whomever in their own system, right? So batch inference is the process of generating these predictions on a, a data set and just caching those predictions. Whereas online inference is the domain of generating predictions in real time, typically on a single data point at a time, but it could also be for multiple data points at a time. So kind of continuing with that, your next post is called um, Storing Metadata for a Machine Learning Experiment. And uh, you talk about the importance of storing metadata during the ML process, as well as the tied metadata to capture. Yeah, well, so, so why, why is it essential to store metadata uh, from your experiment? And uh, what are the different types of data that, that need to be stored? Yeah, so the main reason why it's important to store metadata is because machine learning is an iterative process, right? You don't just build a model one time and it's perfect. And, you know, you can deploy it and leave it alone after that. Typically, you start by generating a couple of input features, training a classifier or regression model, and seeing how well you do. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, the model is not good. And when I mean not good, I mean that it doesn't achieve some minimum level of predictive performance that enables you to actually deploy that model and have its inferences impact your users. So there's this feedback loop where you generate some features, you build, you do, you run an experiment and build some models and look at the, you know, evaluation scores on a held out data set. You learn that the scores aren't good enough. So you go back to the feature engineering step. You look at other data sets, you build more features, you run more experiments. And this sort of just keeps going around in circle and circle. And throughout this process, you need to have a good way of storing the experimental data that you've been generating. Right, in order to be able to compare and contrast between these different experiments over time. And this gets more and more complicated as you add additional team members or as a project goes on over time. Because for example, somebody who's working on a project may decide to leave the company and the project still needs to continue. And now all the insights that this individual contributor had generated, unless they were stored in some way, are gone right? And we, we need to build for continuity of the project. So we need a way of storing all of the metadata that's generated through these experiments. Another reason is, is reproducibility, right? If we aren't able to specify which libraries were installed on a system, what the programming environment was, what the hyperparameters we chose were, we won't be able to reproduce an experiment. And oftentimes we need to be able to do that. Uh, one for operational reasons, right? We need to build the models again. Uh, at some point, we might need to build the models again, but two, we may need it for auditing purposes, depending on the industry, right? More regulated industries need to have uh, audit trails uh, where you can reproduce all these sorts of analyses. So some, some examples of, of metadata to store include um, any metrics that you generate from the actual experiments, right? So if you're concerned, if you're building classifiers and you're concerned with things like AUC or precision or recall, you should always store those values. Uh, on the training sets and on the evaluation sets. You're also interested in uh, metadata related to the actual programming environment you were using. Um, so for example, what was your operating system? What software did you have installed? What versions of those software? And that's again, where data, where Docker comes in really handy because you're able to replicate your, your programming environment very easily. Um, and then you also want information on the uh, data sets that you use for training, where these are stored, uh, the types of models you train, hyperparameters, et cetera. 
So um, ideally, you're capturing everything because it's available to you and you're generating it. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of startups that launch Danchao to focus specifically on um, experiment management, right? Checking, checking your experiment, keeping track of these things. So it seems like that really reflects the importance of, uh, you know, like you mentioned, storing this type of uh, information during, during the ML workflow. We talked a little bit about sort of the importance of uh, reproducing a good results. So uh, another issue with ML is getting bad predictive performance, essentially. Your following post is called How Data Leakage Impacts ML Model. So this one talk about sort of the issues of data leakage, which happen when the data used at the training time is not available at uh, inference time. So uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the term, what is data leakage? What does it happen? And how can we prevent it from happening? Sure. So data leakage occurs when you're training a model and some of the input data that you use to train the model can trivially be used to predict the outcome that you care about. So for example, if we were trying to predict something like whether or not a student would return in the next semester, so like a, a churn model for students, but we include in the input data the number of credits that the student takes in the following semester, which may be zero if the student drops out, then that's what the data leakage occurs, right? That variable isn't actually available at runtime, mm -hmm. but it only happens to be available at training time because we're training on historical data where we have the ground truth signal. So, so data leakage really means like you're leaking information that can trivially predict the outcome you care about. And this is a bad thing because that information is not available at inference time. So it happens for a number of reasons, some of which are really sort of easy to deal with, but some of which are much more complicated to deal with and require a lot of infrastructure. The most basic reason it happens is because you just don't have a data dictionary and you don't know the definitions of certain columns, right? right. So when you're working on Kaggle, you know, Kaggle gives you this nice data dictionary and it describes what all the columns mean. But when you're in a company, that's rarely the case and you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of columns of data um, spread throughout the organization and you most of the time don't know what certain columns mean. So you may just think, okay, well, I'll just use all of the columns in this database because to try to predict this outcome and you'll get this superficially positive result, right? Your, your accuracies or whatever your performance metrics are high, but they're high for a bad reason. It's because you, you put in the answer, you know, you, you, you train the model on the answer essentially. So you're not predicting anything. Um, but then it can happen for more complicated reasons. Uh, and specifically, whenever you're trying to predict something in the future, but you're using historical data that gets updated, um, that updated data can trivially give you the answer. So uh, this isn't the case if you're using data sets where you're just append new records to the database. But if you update the actual columns, um, certain updates can actually give you information about the target that you only have because you're, again, you're looking backwards at historical data. So that's a harder problem to get around. And that typically requires, you know, just storing logs or snapshots of your data over time and going back in time to get what the data looked like when you would have been doing the inferences, right? When you would have been making those predictions. So how you solve data leakage depends on uh, why it's occurring, but solving it in the more complicated cases could require a lot of additional infrastructure. Perfect. So your next long blog series, this one is called Kubernetes for machine learning. 
yeah, this six-part series first introduced Kubernetes, and then it, it goes deeper into each of the component, including parts, jobs, cron jobs, deployment, and services. So can you provide a summary of this series? And uh, you know, what are some of the main takeaways on uh, using Kubernetes for ML that you know, listeners can get out? Sure. So naturally, I thought the Kubernetes series was a good um, extension of the Docker series. And you can think of Docker as these sort of isolated environments, very much similar to um, a virtual machine on your laptop um, or on your computer. They're just, you, know, you can think of Docker as really lightweight virtual machine. What Kubernetes provides is the ability to run and orchestrate these Docker containers in distributed settings. So you can build these much more complicated applications that are resilient um, and fault tolerant and are, you know, depend on Docker as their runtimes. So Kubernetes gives you objects like a cron job. And what a cron job is, is just a scheduled job, right? It's something that, it's a program that will run at a specific time or on a specific schedule. Um, a deployment gives you the ability to create an application like a web application, for instance, um, and host that in an environment. And again, in this example, these objects are very useful for data scientists. So we, we've already spoken about batch inference and online inference, right? And typically for batch inference, you want to generate these predictions on some schedule. So maybe you want to generate predictions each night or each hour or each week. And Kubernetes cron jobs give you a, a simple way of doing that, right? You just create a cron job that runs each night and, and performs your batch inference for you. So you write the application logic in Python or in R or whatever language you're using to actually do the work and you use Kubernetes to schedule the work in some sense. Um, and similarly, Kubernetes deployments and services can be used to create these um, APIs for online inference. So at the time I wrote this series because I was actually developing, this was when I was an individual contributor to you and I was developing a, a machine learning platform and I was building this on top of Kubernetes. So I had had experience with doing this at Control Labs and I was uh, doing this better um, at 2U and was able to write this blog post because there were very few ML platforms out at the time, very few open source versions. And um, I thought this was useful information for other data scientists and machine learning engineers who needed to deploy these systems. I see. And, and uh, kind of related to that point, you know, I believe you have also presented a talk called Productionizing ML Model at Scale with Kubernetes at the uh, Tumo conference last year. And this is the, 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 the Swiping Machine and AI conference, which also have a very popular podcast. And I believe you talk about your, your work at 2U in this talk. So, um, yeah, can you share a bit um, the information regarding it? Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, Twimmel has a really popular podcast. And uh, those podcast episodes go really deep into some of the technical details of data science. And that's a good reason why I really like that podcast. And uh, about a, a little bit over a year ago, they, had, um, uh, they were putting on a conference for machine learning platforms. And I thought, well, this is perfect, right? I write about machine learning platforms. I build machine learning platforms. I'm really well positioned to submit a talk to this conference. So I submitted a talk on the Kubernetes platform that I was building along with my teammates at 2U and the talk was accepted. And essentially what I did was describe what I had learned from building this platform. 
right? What were the challenges? What were the benefits? What would I do differently? Uh, what would I continue doing? And uh, it was a great opportunity to share those lessons at this conference where the people were just genuinely interested in, in learning these things. So one of the main takeaways that I shared was if I can do it all over again, um, I would probably develop many more sort of higher level abstractions for creating these Kuber, these lower level Kubernetes objects. And what I mean by that is if you actually had to deploy something on Kubernetes, you know that you'll have to create Kubernetes specifications for these objects. So if you need to create a cron job, you'd wind up creating a, a YAML file that has all of the details for, for when the cron job should run and other metadata. But you also need to develop the Docker images and the Docker files. And for data scientists who aren't familiar with these systems, this is a lot of work. And a mistake I had made when developing this system was, well, I know this stuff really well. Um, so people on my team should be able to learn this stuff relatively quickly. And uh, that was just a, not a, a good thing to do. The team actually wound up using the system a lot, but it slowed down our velocity because of the amount of additional code we had to write to build these Kubernetes objects. So one of the lessons I shared was, well, if I had to do it again, I would spend more time developing software libraries to make that additional work easier for the data scientists and ML engineers. I see. And you mentioned this uh, a conference that really focused on uh, ML platforms. From your experience, how is um, Kubernetes being used widely across these all different organizations? What, what is sort of the general adoption of this platform? Yeah, yeah I think Kubernetes is used really widely. Um, in the machine learning community. What I think is less certain is how people are actually interacting with Kubernetes. So for instance, I think relatively few companies have their data scientists directly building these Kubernetes specs, right? I think more often the case is that companies use machine learning platforms that are actually written on top of Kubernetes. So for example, you might uh, use a, a third-party vendor that offers a, a cloud-based solution, and their cloud-based solution actually leverages Kubernetes underneath the hood. Yeah, and, and we will talk about uh, about this platform later on. But uh, yeah, but first I want to talk about uh, your next blog post on um, model retraining. Uh, you wrote a post called "The Ultimate Guide to Model Retraining," and this talk about the problem with uh, model drifting, as well as the different step uh, required to retrain models already in production. So yeah, would you mind uh, unpacking this post? Sure. So this is actually wound up being my most popular post. And if you look at like the Google Analytics for the blog, this post has way more views than all of the other posts. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting exponential distribution uh, if you look at the, the, page, the page view count. And I wrote this post because at the time, again, I was looking to solve a problem for myself, which is, you know, how do we figure out when to retrain our models? Because uh, when, you, when you first put out a model, it's sort of at its pinnacle in terms of accuracy the day you deploy it. But then after that, the accuracy is just going to degrade. And the reason for that is because your model was trained on some historical data. And as the, you know, the world changes and as the new input data changes from that of the data used for training, your model quality is going to degrade. And this is what's known as concept drift or model drift or model decay. There's sort of a lot of different names for the same idea. And it's that 
your models get worse over time. But what I found was that there was almost nothing describing how to actually retrain the models, right? There was, there was, there was nothing out there. And um, I actually went on Quora and there was many different questions all asking the same thing, which was how do you retrain the models? And there was none, and there's no answers on any of these questions. So I thought, well, okay, there, there must really be, you know, nobody's writing about this topic. Um, and I know a decent amount about it and I can do some more research, but let me write a post to help people with this question because it's, it's, it's obvious that once you start training your models, you're going to need to retrain them. Um, now, how to do that and when to do that and why to do that is something that is not more well known. So uh, basically my blog post describes, you know, why you need to retrain your models, um, how to implement that, what, what are the sort of issues that can arise um, when you're retraining your models, and these sorts of things. I see. And just kind of related to that, probably, are, are you aware of any tools or you know, SaaS that is in the, 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 the space that doing um, monitoring performance and, and retraining model? Let's say for someone who, who doesn't want to kind of manually perform some of this retraining step uh, for, for their own company. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend uh, checking out the blog post if you wanted to learn more because there's a, a lot of details in that post. Um, there's even, um, I include some code to actually implement uh, model retraining on your own. That would, that would be able to help a lot of people. But you also asked about model monitoring, which is a little bit of a different issue. In terms of monitoring, that's actually um, a space where I think there's relatively little, uh, relatively few good open source tools and little knowledge, you know, on, on doing good job monitoring models. There's a number of good blog posts that I've shared recently um, on model monitoring. One of which is by uh, I think the head of data science at uh, New Relic, and uh, this blog post does a really good job of describing um, what you should monitor because there's a a number of things that should be monitored in machine learning that's different from just monitoring software applications. The next blog series that I want to talk about is, is called Deploying Models on AWS SageMaker. So um, you, you, uh, you provide a very concise description of SageMaker architecture, and then later on, you also have a video tutorial on you know, a very simple example of how to train a secular models on SageMaker. Yeah, so uh, what are some of the significant benefits of using AWS SageMaker for model deployment? Yeah, so SageMaker is a topic I, I like to write about uh, and discuss, and that's mainly because I use a lot of AWS and 2U uses a lot of AWS. So uh, it's easy for us to take advantage of AWS tools. And I think SageMaker does a good job of providing an end-to-end -end machine learning service for data scientists and ML engineers. Uh, it's also worth noting I'm not sponsored by AWS in any way. So I'm not trying to sell them. Uh, I just like this tool. Um, so the, the main benefit I see is that they have a lot of different subcomponents of the system that make a data scientist's life easier. So they have, a, comp they have an ex a component on experiment management, which we've already spoken about. They have the ability to distribute model training over a cluster of machines very easily, and you don't have to handle any of the work. Um, you can really easily deploy your model, both for batch inference and for online inference, which we've spoken about. They have tools for model monitoring, right? So these are a lot of the, what I call the plumbing, of machine learning, right? There, these tasks are not directly related to building performance models, but they are related to building 
high quality machine learning systems. And you need to solve these problems if you want to actually use your models uh, responsibly. So the downside of SageMaker though, is that I think it's a bit challenging to use if you're not already very software savvy, right? So if you're not comfortable going into the AWS console and using a suite of different AWS tools, I think there's a, a steeper learning curve than there is for other machine learning platforms. So benefits are that it's extremely flexible and gives you a lot of power, but the downsides are um, it's a bit challenging if you're not already well-versed in, in AWS and the AWS system. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned I put out these blog posts. I actually just recently ran a workshop where I was teaching SageMaker to a number of data scientists, and machine learning engineers, and I'm actually putting out um, an online course on SageMaker very soon. So the goal there is to teach people how to use this platform to build, deploy, and monitor their own models. So, you know, if, if your listeners are interested in learning how to do that, I'd say, uh, you know, check out my blog and, and, and sign up to learn when I put that course out because I, sh I should be putting it out in the next couple of weeks. Definitely looking forward to it. And um, I assume by the time this, this, uh, this podcast episode is being released, you probably already put that out. So uh, definitely put the link on, on the show notes so people can have a chance to register, set up, and, and learn more on uh, best practice on, on AWS SageMaker. So at the moment, I believe you are working on um, a multi-part blog series on model deployment. Yeah, so so far, based on what you put on, on your website, you, you talk about sort of expanding the idea of deployment uh, in the machine learning context. You, you've written about software interfaces, batch inference, online inference, model registry, and, and test-driven development. So yeah, what is the, mo the motivation behind uh, this series? What have you covered so far? And you know, what, uh, what topics do you plan to write about next? Yeah, I mean, I think you've done a good job of explaining the topics of Carter already. But the, my, my main motivation behind this series is that deployment is a much more complicated than just writing a Flask API, right? And if you Google how do you deploy machine learning model, you're going to get a lot of blog posts on Medium about how to set up a Flask API. And what's, what's funny about these blog posts to me is that they don't go beyond just setting up the API. I mean, they don't even deploy this API on like AWS or something. So you're not really deploying anything. You're just writing a little application on your computer, which is useful, but more of a learning exercise rather than an actual system. Right. Um, so my, my motivation was, this is a complicated topic and there's very little written about it uh, because it's so new and so few companies um, have gotten to this stage of the game where they're deploying actual models, right? So there's a lot of subcomponents that make this uh, a complicated issue. For example... Uh, you know, just knowing the difference between batch inference and online inference um, is important. Once you have a model, like where do you store this thing? And once you've stored this thing somewhere, how do you retrieve the serialized model? Th these are all issues that are, are, are quite challenging and don't have clear answers. Um, and then sort of the next stage of the game is it's not enough to deploy your model once you achieve some minimum level of, of accuracy or predictive performance, right? Because that is just an aggregate measure of how well you're doing on some historical data set. And what that measure misses is how well you're performing on specific subcomponents of your data. So for example, suppose, you know, again, you're building this lead scoring model and one of the input features is where the lead was generated. Did the lead come from a mobile ad or did they find your website organically through Google search or were they referred from some other website? And, you know, 
maybe in the past, you had very few leads that were generated from mobile advertisements. And when you train your model, your model achieves something like 95% accuracy. And you think, oh, okay, this is a good model. It achieves the accuracy I'm comfortable with. But when you drill down and look specifically at the mobile leads or the leads generated from your mobile um, advertisements, the model performs really poorly, right? So now fast forward and your marketing team decides to increase their spend on marketing. And now you're generating many more marketing leads. I'm sorry, many more mobile leads. Now your model, which previously performed poorly on those leads, but there were so few of them, it didn't matter is now going to perform poorly on an increasing number of leads. And this is an issue, right? So uh, these are, you know, that's part of, of testing different components of your models. So my last post was on this idea uh, of what I'm calling test-driven machine learning development, where you want to evaluate your models, not just by some aggregate performance metric on held out data, but you actually want to look at performance on sub-demographics and on sub-slices of your data. Um, I'm writing actually a few more posts. My next one is on uh, performing um, A-B testing and online experimentation to decide when it's actually appropriate to deploy your models to your entire uh, user base. Mm -hmm. And then I'll probably follow up with some posts on uh, model monitoring. So when I started writing this, this series, I had no idea how many posts I was going to write. And now it's just getting bigger and bigger. And it's already at seven, it's already at seven blog posts and it's probably going to get to it 10 before it's over. I think the specificity of how you drill into some of these details is what was very important. And yeah, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of your series when, once you um, have um, a clear idea about the topics that you want to write about. So, so most recently, you wrote a post called Machine Learning is Forcing Software de Development to Evolve. Specifically, you, you encourage every software engineer to learn about running MS system in production. And you, you refer to the, the current shift to software 2.0, which is a very popular term called by uh, Andre Capati, uh, I think uh, almost two years ago now. Can you go over the central thesis discussed here? Yeah, so the idea of software 2.0, which was originally introduced by, uh, as you mentioned, Andre Carpathy, um, in a blog post, is that machine learning is better at doing some tasks than regular programmers are, right? So when you're programming, you're writing logic to perform certain tasks but when you're doing machine learning you're actually just feeding in data and the algorithms are learning to perform this logic that you might otherwise program um, and and in my opinion the this has you know pretty big impact on just the technology industry and tech jobs in general and specifically i think it has big ramifications if you're doing software development most notably I think what's going to wind up happening is that every company or every engineer is going to wind up becoming a data engineer in some sense. And what I mean by this is that right now, if you want to develop an application, you need to hire a number of engineers to write the code base, right? And to write all of the components of, of, of the application. So the humans are doing the heavy lifting, right? Where you hire humans and the humans develop the code and the code runs the application. But if, if machine learning is going to be writing this code in the future, machine learning code, machine learning needs data, right, to write, to write this application logic. So the humans, in some sense, are going to be used to bootload the applications where they're going to write the initial 
versions of the applications. But what they're going to need to do is outfit the applications with a lot of sensors, right? And these sensors are going to produce a lot of data based on how users interact with the system. And then in the future, the machine learning systems is going to use this data that's been generated from these sensors, and it's going to write other parts of the application, right? And we're already seeing that to some small extent right now, where on something like YouTube, the, the next videos you're going to watch are going to be are recommended to you by an algorithm, right? So what happened there was that uh, YouTube hired engineers to develop its system, and then they collected data, usage data, based on which users were watching and liking which videos. And then that data was used to build the very next part of the system, which was the actual recommendation algorithm. And you can argue that the recommendation algorithm is, is the most important part uh, of YouTube because it enables you to find content that you otherwise wouldn't be able to find, right? And, and that's what's keeping you on the application for, I mean, for some people for hours and days. That's just a small example. But that pattern, I think, is going to become much more prevalent in the industry where the entire goal of using engineers is going to be just to generate, to, to write the sensors that generate this data. That's why you, you, you recommend everyone to learn running, running MS system in production, right? So to right, exactly. And the, the, the corollary of that, though, is that you don't need to be a, soft, a data scientist or machine learning engineer. You know, you should, you should learn something about machine learning, but that is going to be uh, dependent on what your skills or passion are, right? So I think DevOps people learning something about machine learning is really important. I think design le- designers and UX people learning how to create uh, useful user interactions because those user interactions are going to wind up generating the data that gets used to train the algorithms is important. Right, so everybody should learn something about machine learning, but you do not need to become a data scientist or a machine learning engineer. Mm, I see. Perfect. Yeah, that that, that kind of emphasized the importance of machine learning in um, how the uh, the tech movement is coming up, especially in the, in the next few years. Yeah, and recently, you know, there's this this new roles on product manager that really focus on AI as well. So exactly, exactly. That, yeah, that shift from traditional consumer app or B two B product manager now they have AI product manager. Exactly. Probably some of the people who really, you know, need to have this kind of mental models to 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 uh, when they approach designing new product. Right. My understanding that you have also like interviewed you know a couple of creators, the top resources on machine learning in production. Uh, based on your conversation with them, um, you know, what differentiates successful industry ML projects from unsuccessful one? Yeah. So that was one of the questions I asked a number of people who have accomplished a lot in the field already. Uh, notably, I was able to interview Eric Coulson, who is the uh, chief algorithms officer at Stitch Fix, Eric Bernardson, who is now the CTO at Better.com, but was previously you know, one of the first data scientists at Spotify, who helped develop some of their uh, really important machine learning-based features, um, and a couple of other really excellent data scientists and machine learning engineers. And really what I wound up taking away was that you shouldn't focus on the hype right? Don't focus on the hype words and the buzzwords of machine learning. Instead, what you should be focusing on is on delivering uh, valuable results, right? And by focusing on delivering the results, that's going to take away from your focus on, you know, just thinking about the algorithms that you're using. You should really be thinking about the customers. You should really be thinking about 
the products you're trying to build and the value you're trying to provide. And, you know, although machine learning is really interesting and it's, it's certainly, you know, really provocative and cool, it's still just another tool, right? And we're only using that tool to improve um, our products, to generate more revenue or to, to save costs, to cut costs and save money. So we shouldn't emphasize, we shouldn't focus so much on the tools. We should focus more on the outcomes and the outcomes that you want to um, arrive at will drive the tools and methodologies that you need to use. So successful projects um, in machine learning are the ones that, that focus on the outcomes, right? Because it's very easy to get caught up in the details and lose the forest for the trees. Um, and I guess one other piece of advice would be to start small, right? So if you're within an organization and you're first trying to use machine learning, don't go after the hardest problem you can right away. Mm-hmm. And this was a point that was actually brought up by um, Andrew Ung in a, a talk uh, when he spoke at, at, at TwimmelCon, you know, in numerous other talks where he says, you know, try to solve the smaller problems that are easier because what that will allow you to do is gain you know, positive favor from the other parts of the organization and the business in, and, and place trust in the data science team. So focus on things that are valuable and focus on, on, on solving valuable problems and then start small and, and build up from there. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for um, sharing that. Yeah. I think last year I, I read a book called um, Economics of AI, which kind of essentially the world is, is talk about the type of problem that does worth solving using machine learning. Essentially one of the main points it's any problem where the cheap prediction is valuable mm-hmm. and, and, you know, yep. and have augment that process. It's, it's yep. It emphasizes on, on the, the importance of having that business-focused outcome-oriented mindset probably for data scientists uh, and practitioners whenever they, they take on the approach. So totally. having that mindset allows them to kind of have a good you know, engagement with, with stakeholders, you know, get, a, get a green light for, for the project to go through. Right? So as someone with, you know, professional experience in data engineering, in data science, and in ML engineering, what are the different skills required across these three roles? I think machine learning engineering and data engineering are really focused on, you know, you need to have a firm, thorough background in software, right? You need to know um, how to, to write good quality software that can be tested and, and you know, and improved. Um, of course, there's many other things you need to know in those fields. Um, but I think uh, you need to have those skills in order to be to be a good data engineer, to be a good machine learning engineer. If you want to be a good data scientist, I think you need to be good at doing data analysis and asking questions. One of the distinctions, I think, between ML engineers and data scientists is that ML engineers are closer to uh, to software engineers, while data scientists are closer to product managers, right, or to people on the business. And the reason is because the data scientist is concerned with um, solving a question or coming to some understanding based on the data. And in order to do that effectively, you need to have domain experience and domain expertise. Um, and that amounts to having a lot of, that often amounts to having a lot of uh, product knowledge. Whereas the machine learning engineer is also, is often more interested in building the actual system um, or writing the code to build a model, right? And maybe less interested in the actual business problem. Now, of course, all of this um, completely goes out the window depending on the company you work for and what the role actually does, right? So I've seen machine learning engineers who run A-B tests, and I've seen data scientists who write and develop machine learning platforms and write libraries, right? So, and I've seen data engineers who build models. 
So depending on where you are, you know, the role will be a little bit different. But I guess my distinction is that data engineers write data pipelines, things like ETLs. Data scientists do data analysis, build features, run A-B tests and experimentation. And ML engineers build feature sets um, and the tools used to build, train, and deploy machine learning models. That's, a, that's the distinction I, will, I use to separate these tasks, uh, these roles, even though I know that uh, oftentimes you know, the title uh, isn't very correlated with uh, what you're actually doing specifically within data. As the, the notion of, of machine learning become more and more standardized across uh, the, the, uh, the industry in the next few years, probably this role will become more well-defined and, and the job descriptions will become much more succinct and clear. Right? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. You know, specialization happens over time. But, you know, there is this conversation in the industry about whether you should have a generalist or specialist. And I think that really comes down to the specific skills that are required based on your industry, right? So, for example, when I was at Control Labs, if you wanted to make effect, you know, if you want to really make contributions to the actual modeling process, you need to have years of experience of analyzing EMG data. So there's no boot camp graduate who would be able to contribute to that actual modeling team, right? Whereas if you're joining to you, that's a very different story, right? It's a lot less about building these very, very specific models. And it's much more about understanding uh, the business problems and the domain. Perfect. Okay, so, so lastly, how would you describe the data science community in uh, New York City? Yeah, so I think, I think uh, the data science community in New York City is pretty vibrant. I think New York City is a great place to be a data scientist. There's a, a lot of tech companies, um, and these tech companies are hiring a lot of data scientists. Aside from that, there's a number of really good meetups. So the New York City machine learning meetup, which is actually led by Eric Bernardson, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the CTO of Better.com is a great meetup. Uh, they have they often have really interesting speakers from some of the top tech companies in New York City. Uh, there's there's a lot of meetups. There's a lot of ways to meet different data scientists um, and you know and learn about data science in New York City. So I think it's a great place to be if you're in in data science. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Actually, yeah, I've been to like a couple of meetups from the one with uh, with Eric leading. So and definitely you can verify what you said and. The great thing is that people generally in New York City is very diverse, right? So mainly you can you can find data science in um, a variety of um, sector, not yep. just but like obviously there's so hedge fund and, and quant finance and yep. you know advertising. So to those companies probably gonna become as the world become much more data driven, those companies probably gonna have uh, events or initiatives that uh, attracts. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of ad tech, there's a lot of finance, but I think those those industries get a lot of sort of notoriety and attention, but there's a lot of other industries as well. Like New York City has a vibrant tech scene outside of ad tech and outside of finance. Um, there's healthcare companies. I mean, Flatiron Health is, is a New York City company that's a, that's a, you know a pretty big healthcare company. There's ed tech. There's just there's pure tech. There's hardware. Um, there's all sorts of companies in New York City. So I think it's a great place to be in general if you uh, work in technology, uh, but especially the case if you're in uh, data science. Perfect. Okay, Luigi, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the, the final segment, 
in which I'm going to um, ask you a three rapid fire question. And then, um, you know, you can give the answers for, for, for the listeners who are listening. Uh, the question number one is, name three people in the data science universe whose work you really admire. Yeah, so one would probably be uh, Andres Karpathy, right? Huge name in, in deep learning. He's given some great talks, and I, all, I often learn a lot just by listening to him. Uh, number two would probably be uh, Lex Friedman. Uh, Lex Friedman has a, a podcast called the AI Podcast, and I think he does a, a great job of bringing really big people in the AI community on to share their expertise um, and their knowledge with uh, the greater community. And then number three would probably be Xavier Amatrain, who is the CTO of a company called Curai uh, or CureAI, and before that. He was um, VP of data science or, or something or another at uh, Netflix. Um, and the reason why I, I name him is he's done a lot of writing in machine learning and in data science, sharing his knowledge. And uh, he's a big source of uh, motivation for me in my writing. Yeah, and I believe Xavier is also the head engineering at Quora as well. Yes, he, yeah, he, he, was, he led engineering at Quora. Yeah, definitely. He's, um, he's very big in in the recommended system community and recently focused on the beyond right. core AI has also been uh, uh, a good, a good uh, fighting, fighting force for, for COVID-19 as well. So that's, that's interesting here. Our second question is name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. Yeah. So I think hands down my favorite machine learning book. It's funny that I say hands down. The name of the book is hands on machine learning and it's written by uh, somebody named uh, Aurelien Geron who was uh, actually a product manager at YouTube on the recommendation algorithm. Um, and I think he's written very easily the best book on machine learning um, in terms of practical knowledge of both classical machine learning algorithms and also deep learning methodologies. Um, his book is filled with code examples, um, but also filled with references to papers so that you can learn more about the theory um, and, and really good examples. And for, I mean, the book is just so inexpensive compared to the amount of value you can get from going through the exercise and actually reading it um, and, and learning about these techniques. So I definitely highly recommend that book. Um, and I actually wrote a, a review of that book on my blog as well. Nice. The last question is that, um, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? My tweet would be, inspired by one of your earlier questions, which was um, what, what's, what differentiates a successful ML project in industry from an unsuccessful one? And I guess it would be a two-part tweet. The first part would say, focus on the value, not the model. And the second part would probably say, uh, keep it simple, stupid. All right, and that's, uh, that acronym is a uh, KISS. Right. And the idea there is, you know, you want to make your model only, you want to make your model as complicated, you know, as simple as it needs to be, but no simpler, meaning you don't want to add any complexity that doesn't need to be there uh, just because the algorithm is cool. Right. So the, the simpler the model that works, you know, as long as it works, the better off everybody is because it's easier to maintain. Um, it's often more interpretable, which is useful. Um, and obviously, the first part of my tweet is to focus on the actual value that you're providing, 
not on the interesting technical work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that, that notion of uh, Occam's razor, right? That is something that sounds simple. Well, it is simple, but doing it in practice certainly is um, it's not easy, actually, you know, because, you know, you uh, data scientists are technical people who, who go yep. because they enjoy, they enjoy the, the complexity, they enjoy the progress. So stepping out of that uh, mental models and embracing the, you know, the, the simplicity is um, requires certainly some effort. Exactly. Yeah, so Luigi, I, I really appreciate, you know, spending your time today with, with me uh, in quarantines, you know, having be a, be a guest on my podcast. Enjoy listening about uh, Georgia background, um, you know, studying in format, studying computer science at Fordham, going through your whole professional experience from data engineer to an engineer to currently director of data science. Uh, your experience working at a variety of sector in, in industry, as well as your wonderful blog post and newsletter on, on machine in production. And, um, you know, I'm sure that um, a lot of people who, people who are listening who either want to enter the field or people who hiring people as well can, can find valuable information from, from the content of this podcast episode. And I'll be sure to include it, all that in the show notes so people can have a chance to read your newsletter and, and learn more about uh, the content that you're putting out. Uh, yeah, so Luigi, I hope you have a great time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, James. I really uh, enjoyed being here. And uh, just for your listeners, if you wanted to reach out to me, uh, best place to do that would be on my blog at mlnproduction.com or at Twitter, uh, where you can find me at mlnproduction. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.